Getting the smile and confidence you've been dreaming about all from the comfort of your home isn't a total mystery with Bite Clear Aligners. Just don't be surprised if all your friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Bite Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Now available on digital. Crowe portrays an ex-homicide detective unraveling a brutal murder he can't recall. Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery to watch Sleeping Dogs, now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery. Welcome to episode 424, uh, remembering former guest and uh, the late comedian Brody Stevens. Um... The this episode is a couple couple of thoughts of mine. Um, an email from a listener up front, uh, unrelated to this, and then a replaying of uh, episode one hundred from February of twenty thirteen, which was my interview with Brody Stevens, and I'm playing it in its entirety from the opening uh, of the show uh, all the way through the end of the show. Um, so all of that is to say, if you've already heard that entire show, there's not a whole lot of new stuff in this one. Um, but I, you know, I went back and forth on whether or not to air this one to kind of honor Brody. And then there was a part of me that was like, well, is that exploitive of you to, to do that? But, you know, it's, it's, I don't think so. It's something that I wanted to do. I want to do. And um, listening back to my interview with him, of course, it brought up a lot of feelings of sadness that he's not here anymore because he truly made me laugh. He was an original voice in comedy. And I've just been thinking about him. It's been a week since uh, he took his life. And I've just been thinking about him a lot this this week. And, you know, I think as a lot of us do when somebody takes their life, you know, we we want to think about what what contributed to that what were the factors um was it um his new medication was it him tired of dealing with bipolar 1 and dealing with medication um was it was he worried about his career uh, you know as you'll hear in this interview um he he talks a lot about his career and i sometimes wonder did he have a balanced life outside of 
his career? Did he take it too seriously? You know, and we'll never have the answers to those things. But what I do know is I've, I fucking miss him. And we were not close friends by any means, but we would perform together sometimes on the same show. And um, we played softball together a couple of times. And um, he just truly made me laugh. And I'm glad I got to tell him how much he, he made me laugh. Um, I was watching some footage of him on YouTube and, or maybe I was reading a quote of him, but a joke he had was when he would be struggling in front of an audience, which would happen quite frequently, but he had this, this ability to will them into getting on board with him, just a fearlessness and he would say sometimes when an audience wasn't on board, you know, in, in the inimitable way that he would do it, you know, he would say, you know, I need your energy. You got to give me something back. I'm up here. I'm giving out energy. I'm doing a positive push. Here's how it works. I scratch your back. You shave mine. Oh, Yeah. Um, and next week's episode is also going to be remembering um, somebody, and it's an episode that I have never aired, and it was um, an interview I recorded uh, almost a year to the day since she her life was taken. Um, she worked with, her name was Jen Golick, and she was a therapist, and it made national news about a year ago. She worked uh, with combat veterans with PTSD up in Yountville, California, and they had to um, reprimand or uh, release a vet who was not uh, respecting the boundaries of the facility, and he returned with a bunch of guns and took three therapists hostage. Uh, Jen was one of them, and uh, he eventually uh, killed them and then took his own life. And uh, I'm sorry this is such a downer, but you know, this is the reality of mental health today. And I wanted, I don't want to shy away from that stuff in this podcast. And there's a part of me that fears that, oh, it's going to bum people out too much. They're going to stop listening. Uh, Your podcast is going to tank and you won't have any way to survive. (laughs) Welcome to my brain. But I, I know there's just a a part of me that feels like it's, if I'm going to do this podcast for a living, I I can't shy away from stuff if it if it bums people out. Um, so that th- those are my those are my thoughts on that. It's just been a weird week. I've I've um, you know, and I've thought about the interview with Jen a lot because I edited that last uh, last week, and I wanted to get the uh, permission of the her family. Um, to air it and they listened to it and um, they gave their permission 
And they said that they would like something um, for her to be remembered by. And um, I'm glad that I can share that with you because she was a fucking hero. Anyway, I'm getting ahead of myself because that's next week's episode. Let's get back to the sadness of this week's episode. Oh, Brody, 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 Brody. Um, this is an email then. I, and so, so what we're going to do is, um, I'll, I'll explain it later. <laughs> this is an email I got from a woman, uh, who wants to be referred to as cathartic dancing. Isn't all dancing cathartic? Actually, half of dancing is cathartic and the other half is embarrassing. And actually, I think there's an overlap. <laughs> I think all cathartic dancing is probably embarrassing on some level. Not to the person dancing, because they're busy letting go of all their feelings. It's embarrassing to the person with them, who is like, what is possessing this person right now? <laughs> is anybody judging me? Um... She writes, my dad is a textbook narcissist. He's at a point in life where he knows something needs to change, but still wants to blame anyone and anything but himself. But I think if there were something he could read on his own when no one is watching that comes off softly, that it could help. I ran across your episode on childhood emotional neglect with Dr. Webb when I was looking for more guidance on that front. I was pleasantly surprised to hear you speak about your narcissism and healing. I'm 25 and I recently tried to have a discussion about emotions and past and current relations with my dad for the first time, fueled by a successful discussion with my mom about the same. I'd been speaking to a great therapist and worded everything so carefully, getting at the emotional root of the issue, speaking on my point of view as just that and not an overarching reality, disclaiming that the conversation was fueled by, uh, disclaiming that the conversation was fueled by desire to be closer, not to blame or hurt. And the result was so awful. I would like for our relationship to resolve and become closer, but I can't handle more conversations like that one. It affected me in a lasting way, and our relationship is much worse for it. Any resources you can recommend would be greatly appreciated. Thank you so much for doing what you do. And I wrote back, um, thank you for your great question. Not being a trained professional, I don't have an answer, but from what I've learned talking to trained professionals about this subject and my own experience, the chances of a true narcissist, as opposed to somebody with a narcissistic streak in them, are very slim that they would seek help, certainly without some type of impending consequence for not doing so. And I personally think anyone who admits to being a narcissist probably has a sense or can cultivate a sense of other people's needs and points of view, whereas someone with a narcissistic personality disorder is incapable of doing so. And I don't know if your father has that, where he lies on the, I don't know, would spectrum be a, a right word, but um, I wrote, I would recommend getting help for yourself is living with someone like your father has probably had profound effects on you and you don't need his cooperation to start healing and growing. In fact, my hunch is the road to healing and independence is truly letting go of caring whether he gets help or not. And... As far as me dealing with my narcissistic tendencies, um, support groups have helped greatly um, because there's often in support groups feedback from people. Um, uh, 
journaling, writing, looking at your part in things. Um, and those were eye-opening to me because I couldn't see how selfish I was, how scared I was, how resentful I was. And I've had to, I've had to learn to deal with those things. And I certainly don't always do it well or perfectly, but I'd like to think that I am self-aware and I do feel that I've made progress. So whether or not your father will do that. It, I, I have to tell you, from what you described in your email, it does not sound promising because you did everything you could. You worded it carefully. Your therapist helped you do it. You didn't attack him. You expressed it in terms of your feelings. Those are all the things that you're supposed to do to open the door for that person to meet you halfway. And your father is not interested in meeting you halfway, it sounds like. So personally, I would just say what I said with my, to my mom, I had to cut contact with her because, you know, we would feel like we were coming closer together. And then there would just be something that would just, I would feel so unseen and disrespected and uncomfortable and sad and be depressed for weeks that I finally had to say, I love you. I wish I could have a relationship with you, but I can't because it's just not healthy for me. And I think that would be the way to do it. And don't look for your father's approval. That's your decision. You know, when you grow up with somebody who is narcissistic and manipulative as a caregiver, it can really fuck with your head and it can make you believe that the solution to happiness is accommodating them somehow or getting them to change. And that is, it's crazy making. It can really affect our, our mental health. And um, it's self-care is the answer. Whether if that person wants to join you on the ride to recovery and growth, awesome. And if they don't, you're still going to be awesome and growing. And I hope that helps. Uh, support for today's podcast is from Madison Reed for decades. Women have had two options for coloring their hair, outdated at-home color or the time and expense of a salon. Madison Reed delivers gray covering, game-changing color you can do at home and look as if you just came from the salon. You deserve gorgeous professional hair delivered to your door for less than 25 bucks. What makes Rad Madison Reed color unique is that it's crafted by master colorists who blend nuances of light, dark, cool, and warm to create over 45 gorgeous multi-tonal shades. The feedback that I have gotten from the listeners who tried it is that it's convenient, it's simple to use, it's well laid out, well thought out, the smell is pleasant, and the color quality is great. So what more do you need to know? Find your perfect shade at madison-reed.com. And you guys, the listeners, get 10% off plus free shipping on your first color kit with code M-I-H-H. That's a new code, by the way. That's code M-I-H-H at madison-reed.com. And we'll put links to all this stuff on our uh, on our website. Uh, today's show is also brought to you by Third Love. Third Love uses data points generated by millions of women who have taken their Fit Finder quiz to design bras with breast size and shape in mind. The results? 
a perfect fit and premium feel. So simply answer a few questions to find your perfect fit in 60 seconds. Then once you receive your bra, you can wear it, wash it, and put it to the test for 60 days. And if you don't love it, return it. Third Love will wash it and donate it to a woman in need. It's all part of their 100% fit guarantee. It is, hands down, the most comfortable bra you'll own with straps that won't slip, tagless labels, and lightweight, super-thin memory foam cups. And they even have a line of incredibly soft and breathable cotton bras. And I can tell you my girlfriend has them and loves them. She says it's the most comfortable bra she's ever worn. Third Love knows there's a perfect bra for everyone, so right now they are offering you guys 15% off your first order. Go to thirdlove.com slash mental to find your perfect fitting bra and get 15% off your first purchase. That's thirdlove.com slash mental for 15% off today. And today's episode is brought to you, as always, by BetterHelp.com. If you've never tried online therapy, I highly recommend it. It has helped me greatly. Uh, just this week, I've been making progress with uh, my, my therapist, Donna. She's helping me sort out some stuff that I'm not ready to, to talk about yet, but um, it's... It's not like earth-shaking stuff, but um, I love that, that she she really uh, does kind of a boots-on-the-ground approach, and um, yeah, I can't recommend it enough. I love not having to leave my house to, to do therapy. So uh, if you're interested in trying it, go to betterhelp.com slash mental. Make sure you include the slash mental so you, they know you came from this podcast. Fill out a questionnaire. They'll match you up with a betterhelp.com counselor, and you can experience a free week of counseling to see if online counseling is right for you, and you need to be over 18. And uh, without further ado, here is uh, essentially episode 100 uh, with Brody Stevens uh, from February of 2013 uh, in its entirety. Welcome to episode 100. Motherfucker! 100! That is so... That is so cool that 100 episodes in, this uh, this show is still going strong. I Who'd have thunk it? Who'd have thunk it? Um, so I'm so happy to have you guys as as listeners. Um, I can't even tell you. And our guest uh, today is Brody Stevens, and um, he's going to talk about mania and a manic episode that he has um, probably more in depth than we've ever talked about mania on this show before. And I know we've gotten some emails before from from people that uh, wanted some more discussion of mania. So um, hopefully you will, um, you'll get something out of today's episode. But I digress. My name is Paul Gilmartin. This is the Mental Illness Happy Hour. 90 minutes of honesty about all the battles in our heads, from medically diagnosed conditions and past traumas to everyday compulsive negative thinking. This show is not meant to be a substitute for professional mental counseling. It's not a doctor's office. It's more like a waiting room filled with conversations you've always wanted to have, maybe didn't know how to start. Um, the website for this show is mentalpod.com. Please go there. There's all kinds of surveys you can fill out to let me know who you guys are um, better. Um, and I frequently read those on the on the show. And there's a forum you can join too. And actually, I'm going to be reading uh, later in the show a little excerpt from the forum, giving some love 
to the uh, the great people in the forum. Um, what did I want to mention? I'm constantly trying to find the perfect way to describe what depression is like to people that haven't experienced it, and one that that I th- I think might help people understand is you know that feeling when there's a pool and the water isn't really warm in it it's not freezing cold but it's it's a little kind of cool and people are jumping into it and they're like oh my god that's so cold but it's good once you get used to it and you're standing on the edge in your bathing suit and that that kind of trepidation you have about jumping into the pool Depression is like that, but with every single activity that you have on your plate. So suck on that, huh? I want to read something from the Struggle in a Sentence survey. And this was filled out by a woman who calls herself Serena. She's straight. She's in her 20s. And if you haven't filled out the uh, Struggle in a Sentence survey yet, please do, because it really um, it helps me understand how you experience the, the things that you struggle with, and I think will help other people also understand that. Uh, describing her depression, she says, My depression feels like if an angel put a magic wand near me and said if I waved it, all my problems would be solved. I wouldn't have enough energy to try to get the magic wand. About her anxiety, she says, I can go from making dinner and singing along to the radio to thoughts of, I want to die, why am I here, in a matter of seconds, sometimes without a trigger. About her PTSD, she says, my PTSD makes it difficult for me to hear my husband tell me how much he loves me and not laugh. I'm I'm assuming, and, and for her to not laugh. Um... Because that would be pretty fucking mean if he was stifling a laugh as he told her he loved her. <laughs> um, she says, love has been taken away so often in my childhood that I protect myself through insinc- uh, insincerity. Um, anger issues. She says, I often dream about my mother dying and I wake up happy every time. Ugh. She also filled out a... Um, Serena also filled out the Happy Moments survey, and I just kind of like this one, so I wanted to read it as well. She says, one of my favorite crystal clear moments was being on the top of the Zugspitze. Oh, the Germans. Oh, they can make everything sound like a, like a turd. Um, I was on top of the Zugspitze, a mountain in Germany. I was skiing and happened to be one of the first in the early morning. The snow was untouched and I could see down all the sides of the mountain. I felt like I could touch the sky and that the sun was embracing me. The air was cold and felt cleansing when I breathed in. I started to ski down and made the first tracks of the day. The snow was soft and fast and all I could hear was my breathing and the edge of my skis in the snow. I was so present in that moment that I remember whispering to myself, record this moment in your mind. Remember the smell. Remember the smell of the air, the taste, the sight, the feel. I knew it was special. That happened over 10 years ago, and I can recall it with perfect clarity. That's beautiful. And before we get to the uh, the interview with Brody, I want to, uh, the last thing I want to read is an email 
from a listener named KJ, and she's a, a, a lesbian whose family has not um, accepted, kind of refuses to uh, recognize her sexuality or accept it. And she had written me uh, an email, and I'm just going to kind of pick up about halfway into it. She says, um, it took me a while to get to the point of realizing I can't control their actions. I can only control how I respond. For years, I tried to be extra good in all other areas of my life to compensate for their disappointment in my sexuality. It never worked. Add to it the sting of a seven-year relationship never recognized, never recognized, during which my stepbrother married three times. Every wedding attended by my folks. Ah, but there I go, feeling bitter again. Well, who would, who wouldn't feel a little bitter about that? Um, and then she continues. I just want to uh, thank you for the suggestion to reach out to a support group. Turns out there's a huge organization here in San Francisco called the National Alliance on Mental Illness. Uh, I never thought I'd be the support group type, but my girl is so important to me. I want to make sure she is safe, happy, and healthy. They hold courses for loved ones to help recognize warning signs. Uh, learn about medication, etc. A great resource. My partner is very self-aware and super open about where she is mentally, but the part I worry about most is that I won't recognize when slash if she's going downhill and I'll be alone with her at the bottom. Fingers crossed. Signed, KJ. And uh, the website for, and I can't believe we've never mentioned this this um, website before, this group, but the National Alliance on Mental Illness, uh, NAMI, uh, nami.org is the website so go to it and I'm sure you can find a support group in your, your area they also have educational materials um, probably can answer any any question that you'd have and the thing th- that I wrote back to KJ too was I, I wrote back uh, that's awesome that you found a support group yay uh, and here's the cool part about support groups if you become a dedicated member of one and give and receive love there on a regular basis should the quote shit hit the fan in your personal life, you will never have to deal with it alone. That's been my experience in my nine years of support groups. They've held me when I cried, soothed me when I panicked, and guided me when I was lost. That is all there for you. And the even better part is when you get to hold others when they cry, soothe them when they panic, and guide them when they feel lost. Every human being has weird thoughts going through their head. Oh, God, it's so embarrassing. I'm afraid I'll never get another job again. That I will die and will have not been special. My brain has the gift of seeing the terrible. A million-pound tourniquet being turned against my chest that was constant. Then I started sabotaging my own career. Wanting to die and... To stop him from feeling any joy. (laughs) That is... Very uncomfortable in my own body. I ended up becoming a male prostitute. And what I became was an animal. They took away my shoelaces. I became chaos. Like it hurts. I just want to go. I just want to leave. You have no idea what a small part of your life this is. If you go to a support group, it's like creating a family that you didn't have. I mean, life is 1% event. My body was abused. 99% judgment about that event. But they couldn't touch the best parts of me. But the world is a little bit wounding. It's also glorious. It does always get better. It really does. I'm here with Brody Stevens, who I'm very excited to uh, to finally have as a guest. We've been talking about this for the longest time, and uh, for some reason, we just never got around to putting it, putting it, picking a date and and doing it. But uh, for those of you that don't know Brody, he is a funny man, uh, an original voice in comedy. Um, you may know him from the the Hangover movies. You were in Hangover Two or One, both, One and Two. I haven't seen either. Um, 
Oh, yeah, yeah, you can talk. Oh, I can talk, talk at any now. point. I thought Absolutely. you were doing an intro. I do long intros on my podcast. Like I, I go long purposely. Yeah. I run the light on my own podcast <laughs> with my intros, especially. <laughs> can you run the light on an intro? You can. You can. You can give yourself the light on anything. Yeah. A lot of times, I'll, when I'm taking a piss, I'll give myself the light. And I go, I got to wrap this up. Got to wrap it up. Nightlight. Yeah. Got a nightlight. See, I'm doing word association. <laughs> um, you are originally from Seattle? No, no, I'm originally from San Fernando Valley, where we are right this very moment. In your apartment? In my apartment, in the valley. I was born in the valley, Panorama City, Kaiser Hospital. And for the first three years... I lived in Simi Valley, which is not the San Fernando Valley. And then three years after that, Sacramento, still in California. Still in a valley. Still in a valley. I guess the San Joaquin Valley. Is that Sacramento? I think so. And then I came back to Tarzana in the valley, and that's where I spent my, my grammar school years, my high school years. And then I went to college in Arizona. And then I, be, I came back to L.A., and that's when I began doing comedy. Not officially. My official start was Seattle. Thank you. Oh, yes. Okay. My comedy start, to make a long story short, my comedy start was in Seattle. My life start was here in Southern California. And all the valleys, uh, fear of heights? Um, because I'm in the valley. Although always in picking a valley. You know, actually, I do have some fear of heights. Do you? You know, not, I mean, jumping off something. Like if I was in a... Like we were swimming in a, a hole, a swim hole, and there was a boulder to jump off, and everyone's jumping off easy. I would like have second thoughts, and I'm not good at that, just going for it. I'm good at going for it in some other things, but not jumping off a rock into the water. Yeah. Uh, you have an athletic background. You were a pitcher at, was it Arizona? I went to Arizona State, which is a Division One baseball powerhouse. So you must have been a, a, a hell of a pitcher in high school. Well, I had a good arm. I was competitive, I would say, and I went to Reseda High School. I was a competitive pitcher. Our program in high school wasn't all that strong. There were better baseball programs that may have been able to uh, utilize my talents uh, more so. But um, I had a decent career in high school. I like to say I was like, a sol- you put me out there. I did a good job. And Arizona State did recruit me because the the coaches there th- thought I had a good arm and I would fill out and get stronger. And I did. They were right. I went there and, you know, I, I wasn't a star on the team, but I was on the team and I pitched some games. But for the most part, I was not that much of a on-the-field contributor. But I did have a good arm and I pitched through the ball very hard. But to what, get it, what was your fastball? Back then, I got clocked at high 80s, 91, 92. Wow. I mean, I threw hard. I struck out a lot of guys. But the way I threw the ball, I think I put extra strain on my elbow, and I ended up having elbow surgery. And from that point on, it was downhill. But the first couple of years, I really made improvements. They changed my mechanics and how I threw the ball, but eventually I just ended up putting strain on my elbow. But I had moral victories there, you know, as a – which, you know, they say there aren't moral victories in sports. But for me, there was just what I went through there, my, my you know, my journey there. You know, I, I don't walk away bitter at all because I hurt my arm or anything. Do you, do you think having had that arc of getting better and seeing that if you put the, put the work in, you, you will improve, do, were you able to bring that 
to your mindset when you started doing comedy that, okay, I just kind of need to be patient with this. I'm going to improve. Exactly. Yeah. You know, that's what I knew that I wanted to handle comedy like I did baseball. You know, like I said, I walked away from baseball not bitter. I felt I gave it my best effort. My, by, I got the most out of it. I, I coached there. I got my degree. I, a lot of things happened in the five years. You know, I redshirted one year. It takes five years to graduate. But a lot happened there, and I saw... I saw, yes, how hard work would pay off. And I, when I went up to Seattle to essentially start comedy, I said, I'm going to take it and approach it like baseball, knowing that it's repetition, putting the time in and failing and learning and taking criticism and having people hopefully be honest with you. And so, you know, and some people are, some people aren't show business. There, there are similar. They are have, there are some similarities, similarities between sports and show business, but in a lot of ways they are completely different. I think when, when kids grow up and they're, uh, and they play sports in a way that isn't sick, you know, that, you know, where you don't have a dad like pushing you or a mom pushing you, uh, I think it can be a really great experience it cannot kind of only build self-esteem but can show you arc of the arc of things that will happen later in your life um and uh there's just a a great outlet for angst and you know other things what what do you remember about being uh okay well let's let's go let's go back to the beginning beginning um you were born here in the valley any brothers and sisters? Sister, older, uh-huh. five years. Um, what was your relationship with your folks like? It was pretty good. Got along with my mom. She would yell at me a lot. I could remember her with her high-pitched voice at times. Yep. What, like what would she say? Stephen! Stephanie Stephen! Yelling at, you know, just Jewish mother type stuff. I guess that that, that is a... And Stephen is your first name. Brody's your middle name. Brody's right? my last name. Oh, okay. So here, that, and that's another thing. My okay. real name is Stephen James Brody. Okay. Everybody calls me Brody. Everybody thought that was my first name, in fact, when I would introduce myself. Oh, your name's Brody. So I, I put that in the back of my head, like, people like saying the name Brody. And when I went to school and I played baseball, I was Steve Brody. Stephen Brody, mostly Steve Brody. That's what I was. I was the baseball player. But when I went on into comedy, I just felt Steve Brody wasn't a comedian. Steve Brody, in my life, I know it sounds weird, Steve Brody was the athlete, was the baseball player. And I just felt I wanted to keep the Brody name. People like saying it. And they always thought they thought it was my first name. So I go, why don't I just make it my first name? That's that's clever. So I just switched my name around. And at the time, um, I mean, the name Brody Stevens is a cool name. There's like at the time, there's only maybe two other Brody Stevens is out there when I did it. But looking back on it, it kind of makes me cringe as I get older because it's not who I am. I'm not Brody Stevens. I am on stage. Mm-hmm. You know, that was a, a time in my life and people like saying Brody Stevens and I know it is part of me, but the real me is Stephen Brody. That's who I really am. And as I get older and more mature and more confident in myself, I feel as though I can be more honest and say that. So, so I say that for seriousness, Stephen Brody, but for show business, I could just kind of combine the two. So that's why I go by Stephen Brody Stevens. Yes. So it's a combination. <laughs> it's so silly. Right. But it makes me feel better, actually, yeah. because I mean, I'll say Brody Stevens and I'll, and I'll, I'll respond, but I never liked, 
like when you order coffee or you go, you're ordering food and you put your name down. I never put Brody. Brody. They didn't know the name or I just, I always put Steve. And then just through the years, last few years especially, I just felt like I need to be, I don't like bumming people out when they hear, oh, Brody, it's not your real name. Oh, you know? You know, I think that it's kind of cool and that it can help you delineate who you are on stage from who you are off stage because I think there's an inherent danger when we are our own product that we can begin to take ourselves too seriously, that we can take criticism of our comedic persona as criticisms of us as human beings. And having that delineation, I would think in some ways would be kind of freeing. It. You're saying having a stage name different from your real name. Right. And I I don't mind that. I like that. Yes, it is freeing. The thing that bothers me is that I feel it's kind of a hacky thing. It's kind of, it's been done before, number one. I mean, when I, and and no knock, I'm good friends with Orny, but Orny Adams, his real name was Adam Ornstein. And then I feel like couple other comedians did that or a couple of like Stephen Fisher his name is Fisher Stevens I mean Fisher Stevens his real name is Stephen Fisher I just it just made me cringe I just never I like I said as I get older and I feel as though I have more it, I, I have more of a foundation to say hey I want to go back to this it does make me feel better and that might be part of my part of some of my issues that I have with things like maybe nobody cares but I care, mm-hmm. and I feel as though by doing Stephen Brody Stevens, it's not completely different, but it's different enough to where I feel good, the audience feels okay about it, and then maybe there's a new audience who's into Stephen Brody Stevens. I got you. I got you. Like John Cougar Mellencamp. Yeah, it's something like that. <laughs> but yeah, I am free on stage. It is. I mean, it, I mean, I'm not completely. You know, when I'm on stage, I'm more of kind of. Um, you know, a little more animated, a little more, you know, at another level, but yeah. not, uh, it's pretty much me. Yeah. Uh, for those of you that, that have never heard Brody's comedy, um, it's kind of hard to describe, but it's, it's a, um, there's, a, there's a personality. You are a personality up there that I think is so hard for comedians to achieve because you've achieved that thing where, it almost doesn't matter what you're saying. You're just you're just funny. And that to me is that's like why people get hired to be in movies because it's they're not just funny writers, they're they're funny in the way they deliver things and how they carry themselves. Mm-hmm. And it's not phony with you. It's it's um it feels very organic and it's it's kind of like this I always get the the vibe that it's kind of like a mock pomposity. Is yeah. that is that a fair? Yeah, there's some yeah. of that in there, and and the reason why I do that because I feel as though this is such a credit driven society. Oh, you're in this movie. Oh, let me pay more attention to you. Or oh, you hang out with that guy. Now I'll laugh at you. So I beat him to the punch. You're not you're not you're not you're not getting me? Well, Zach Galifianakis gets me. <laughs> they put me in the hangover, but you're not. I'm going to listen to the hangover people. I'm in that world. So it's like there's that boasting, but it's 
you know, it's a character. I'm not like that in real life, of course. I don't walk into a coffee shop or a store and go, I'm in the hangover. You do this, do that. Um, that did happen to me. I did go through an episode of that, and we maybe, maybe we'll touch on it. Maybe we won't. I uh, can. We're definitely going to touch oh, on it. Oh, wow. We're going to molest Bill it. Bill Martin we're putting gonna... it down, and I'm ready for it in a positive way. <laughs> It's all about positivity, pushing it forward. Yeah, I've combined, um, I mean, I guess you're right about the pompacity, and I think a lot of it has to do with, you know, uh, just people I grew up with, baseball players, comedians early on. You know, I'm influenced, uh, I'm not, I am an original voice, but I am also influenced by certain people, of course. I think we have our early influences and different periods in our life and different things, and you listen to the audiences and you... You get a feel for what works and what doesn't work, and you try to you got to do it for yourself. Yeah. Well, what I, what I like about what you do too is you will be like the really pompous one minute, and then reveal some incredibly humbling thing about yourself the next minute, and kind of make fun of it. And so it's. Uh, I just I just enjoy that. Oh, thank you. Well, yeah, you don't want to go too far and beat him over the head with uh, you know, that I I I stuff. I'm this and then you got to you know, you do have to kind of turn it towards you and make fun of yourself and that's just part of being a, a comedian and learning and feeling and p- playing off the audience and mm-hmm. just knowing when it's right to be in that self-deprecating mode mm-hmm. also. These days, I do it with a smile, and I think because I'm just more a mellower. So the audience, before they go, oh, is this guy really mad or is he really upset? Right. Whereas now it's like, okay, we kind of get it. He's not that way. And I feel better that way, and it just keeps, it brings the audience in a little more. Yeah. So let's, let's talk about the... I want to talk about the episode that you had, um, whatever you want to call it, meltdown. What, 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 what would you do? You, cri- I, would, crisis? I, would, I would call it an episode. Okay. Um, what mental illness do you suffer from? Well, they, they've labeled me yeah. with bipolar. How dare they? <laughs> um, bipolar one or two? One. Okay. I think I'm called bipolar one because this is what my psychiatrist, psychologists and psychiatrists say and other doctors have said um because i had a manic episode which i did i'm not denying that i am bipolar because i had the manic episode my argument my contention with that is that a good is that the right word contention i think so my um issue with that is that i felt my episode was triggered you know people have episodes that you know they ha- there are triggers was triggered from me stopping a medication cold turkey taking an antibiotic traveling and base and, and basically th- th- confused because i got sick and it may have been a withdrawal and i stopped taking my meds and they gave me an antibiotic and i felt great and then i like spiraled upward and so anyway i had a manic episode but I feel my manic episode was initiated with okay. me stopping my meds cold turkey. My, I was on Lexapro. Okay. 20 milligrams, therapeutic, basic level. A lot of people do it. Not you know, doesn't make it. It's not wrong. There's nothing wrong with it. Right. But I'm saying a lot of people did that, and it seemed to take the edge off. But when I stopped it cold turkey, it just spiraled me up. 
you know, typical, if you saw what a manic episode was, the definition, I hit them all. And we'll talk about that, but I I also want to talk about something that it feels like has been left with you, which is the fear that people are going to think you're a fucking ticking bomb. You know what I mean? I imagine that's what, that's not what I perceive of, of you, but you qualifying what led to that episode makes me think that you that there's a fear there that that you're going to be stigmatized because because that happened to you and that that's going to be oh that's who Brody is instead of what really happened which is this was a confluence of the perfect storm exactly perfect storm that's what was that's what the, one of the psychi- psychiatrists when the doctor said this is a perfect storm what happened to me so and that, I just want to interrupt for one second, and that's one of the things that when people have di- difficulty having compassion for themselves who suffer from men- mental illness or loved ones who don't understand what the person is going through, they don't just suffer from the mental illness; they suffer from all the social ramifications of also living with a mental illness. You know, the societal implications of, oh, that person's now kind of afraid to be around me, or people are treating me with kid gloves, or people are just telling me to suck it up and be grateful about what I have. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. So it's, all of that is on top of also living with mental illness. And I just wanted to, I just wanted to, to put, to point that out because some people feel like, oh, I'm, you know, I'm making too big of a deal about living with mental illness. No, it's a fucking pain in the ass sometimes. Yeah. And complicated. It, it certainly can be. Um, you know, I don't mind the stigma. I don't feel I have a stigma. I mean, I, I felt it actually probably helped my career. In fact, I used it that episode that I had, I used in this HBO digital series that I did. And that was one of the, you know, one of the arcs of the show was me getting out of the hospital and getting my life back together and getting back on TV. Is it scripted? No. I mean, it was scripted. Rea- we call it sketchality. Scri- okay. Scripted reality. but So based in reality, but just kind of a recreation with... A lot of that, comedic. yeah, yeah, Com- you know, comedic tones, but real stuff. My mom, my sister, and me. Your uh, actual mom and sister. Yeah, they were, yeah. They were in it. So yeah. it was like a. Do- it was actually okay. technically a documentary, okay. but it was on HBO, and it was. I think it's still up there on uh, their digital HBO Go. Six fifteen-minute episodes, but I, I, I didn't. You know, because when I was in the hospital, I felt like I was there because I made a mistake. It wasn't like something just snapped to me. It was that perfect storm, not taking the meds. And then I felt like I was in there and, you know, my friends would come visit me, I, you know, and they would just, they were cool. And I just felt like it was like kind of a cool thing almost. Like, this is a badge of honor. Like, how many comedians, I mean, I'm sure there's a lot and a lot of them don't talk about it, but I was open talking about it. I think what made it easier for me is that when I was having the episode, I was on Twitter, so people were already aware. A lot of people were at least that something was happening to me. So I kind of already gave them a heads up that something was happening. And then once I got in the hospital, I felt like, you know, I already did the stuff on Twitter. Might as well just take it to the the next level Hmm. because I felt I was in there because I stopped my meds cold turkey. Now, later on, I've learned that 
you know, maybe it would have happened anyway. You know, I've been now I go through therapy. Now I have a therapist. Now I have a you know, it's much more I have a support system. Everything is, is in place. But it's taken a lot of time to adjust. You know, when they talk about mental illness being hard, I went from euphoria with my I was doing fine I, I mean I was I was fine for the most part then I had that episode and then after it was just like a downhill I became depressed mm-hmm. that was the real hard problem for me is becoming depressed nobody told me okay Brody once you have this manic euphoric episode you go to the hospital they put you on different meds you do some therapy you'll be fine Nobody warned me about the depression really coming to get you and then the anxiety and then me personally living in a different situation. All the while I was doing good things. My comedy was getting better. But Isn't that funny? Yeah. It was like I did Conan. I've been doing Chelsea. I got a half hour. I shot the HBO show after I was out of the hospital. But I just wasn't feeling good. And I think part of that had to do with the medication that I was on. They switched up my medication, the situations I was in. And I had to, you know, teach myself new habits, stay busy. And that's part of it. I mean, I did warm up for nine years and I I was busy every day. And I'm sure people thought warming up for sitcoms, uh, talks like variety shows, Chelsea lately, a lot of shows at Fox sports, comedy central pilots, not sitcoms. Those guys make pretty good money, but I'm not in that, that high elite world of it, but I was, yeah, people probably thought before all this happened, I would be the guy like, Ooh, this guy may snap. I feel like right now, um, because I'm in a better, I am in a better place. I mean, I am on different medication now than I was before. So maybe the medication that the doctors are saying, like the Lexapro alone that I was on, was not the right medication for me. So the fact that I had this episode and they switched up my meds, and it took a while to find the right combo cocktail, um, and that's why I think I mean, there's one, you know, getting that, it was hard to, to, to balance out. But it did help my comedy, and it did keep me from going into that red zone and frightening the audience. So these meds helped my comedy, but were making my life more, it was more difficult because they can kind of like bring you down a little bit, slow you down. Dull you, kind of. They can dull you, and... They can give you anxiety. Meds can give you depression. It takes your time to adjust. So it was finding the right cocktail. But all the while, my comedy was good. Mm-hmm. So I'm, I was grateful for that. But my personal life, me as a, you know, I just had, a, it's, been, it's been tough. And it's getting better. I'm not saying I'm healed and I'm perfect. But, man, the uh, depression was really hard for me. Well, before we get to that, let's let's talk about the 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 manic episode because it's not something that we um get to talk about a lot on this on this podcast um and i get a lot of emails from people that want people to talk about the mania side of bipolar so um can you talk about how it how that manic episode began what it felt like how it progressed Etc. Etc. Walk. Walk me through it. You got it, Paul Gil Martin. Yes. Hold my hand. Follow me with a flashlight. <laughs> um, just a little build up. The only thing that was really bothering me that wasn't 
that was out of my normal issues was how I left Chelsea lately. And I left that on bad terms. I left that maybe in a manic type behavior. I was very, you know, I did my job good, but I would, I would, you know, I'd sweat and I'd get on the audience for not clapping. It was very, I was like, you know, uptight and focused and, you know, coming from that athletic background. So it could be polarizing at times. So that's what I'm saying. Like people thought, oh, maybe this guy will snap one day. And then I did. And so anyway, did the warm up. So that was the only thing that was really bothering me. Were you let go? No, but I was afraid I was going to be let go. I I quit before I felt like I was going to be fired or reprimanded. And I felt uh, I was being reprimanded for... You know, I, I don't want to go all into detail on, sure. on that, but that, that one was um, because it's all been better. It's better now it, that those relationships are have been smoothed over. And it was just basically an issue with the crew. And I went on the hallway and I vented to one of the producers and he felt it was unprofessional. And I felt I had worked there for 400 shows. You know, I'm allowed to vent one time in the hallway. And he kind of like pushed his weight around a little bit and it upset me. And so then the second show that day for warm up, I kind of like reeled it in. I didn't give him the Brody energy, which I do every day. That's my job. It was harder for me just to sit there. and But I had to make a point like you can't push me around. I mean, I have to be in a good mood and you have to let me vent. I mean, if I'm doing it and I wasn't like saying you got to do something, I was just kind of like. These guys are bugging me in there. And anyway, it ended bad and it bothered me how the situation was and how I went from being a part of fam- a part of a family to being an outsider. So that was bothering me. On the good side, I had this HBO opportunity and now I had the opportunity to get out there and hopefully do some more stand up and build up, you know, get out of the warm up because I'd always been I I didn't mind doing warm up. I like it actually, but I feel like I could take half that energy and make twice as much money you know it's like warm up you're banging your head against the wall sometimes but if you get the right gig where you're with your friends or whatever it's fine but there are hell gigs you know in that warm-up world so I, i i owe it to myself i owed it to myself to really try and go for it outside of warm up so Anyway, left Chelsea. That was the, the one bad that was bringing me down. If that was one negative, other than my just like normal insecurities, but I knew I had an HBO show. I was doing festivals. I went to Ireland. I went to Montreal. So we and I was pitching these shows. I was actually like doing these pitch meetings. I was confident. Um, they were putting me on TMZ every week out in front of the the Hangover Two premiere. Uh, they out in front of the comedy store, the improvs. So I was on that all the time. I was feeling good. I was being myself. I was exercising. I was happy, and I felt like maybe I don't. Need, at that point, I started thinking maybe I don't need the Lexapro so much. Like now, maybe I can drink a little bit because you really can't drink on it, and there are some side effects, sexual side effects. I felt like I was doing well. Maybe I can cut back, but again, I wasn't under doctor's care on it. So that was. I didn't go off it at that point, but I was like implanted in my head. I was, yeah, maybe I can get off this thing because things are going well and I feel like I want to go to a, another level. So um, I'm just trying to think about the story here. So went to um, Montreal. Actually, Ireland. Did well in Ireland. Feeling good. Go to Montreal. Feeling good. And then I was kind of, I, I rationed my meds a little bit 
in uh, Ireland because I wanted to drink and be a part. I, I still took them, but I rationed them. I got to Montreal, went straight to Montreal from uh, from Ireland. I got to Montreal and. I might have taken like I felt great the first day I got there, and then the second day I just felt like a sickness coming on, and I got this 24-hour flu, body aching, throwing up really bad, and I didn't even take I didn't take my vitamins. I didn't I stopped with the Lexapro. I was weaning off kind of like you know not in the proper way, but then when I got sick, I couldn't even swallow. I couldn't eat. So then I ended up after like 48 hours of being bedridden, sweating, and which may have been withdrawal because I wasn't taking Lexapro consistently like I, I should have. Mm -hmm. That's what it may have been, but it also may have been the, the flu, like mm -hmm. a 24-hour flu. So I go downstairs at the hotel. It's free health care, and the guy says, I have strep throat, the doctor. He says, you have strep throat. Here's Get this antibiotic, and you'll feel better in 24 hours. I took it. I felt better in 24 hours. My mind was clear. I was feeling good. I did a show that night. The next night, the next day, I take the antibiotic. I'm not taking the Lexapro because I feel like, okay, it's out of my system. I'm good. And then I took the antibiotic. I had good shows in um, a couple days there. I had a great time partying. It was fun. I come back to L.A. and uh, I go see my mom. I'm feeling good. I come back to a Dodger game. And then I see Zach. And Zach is like, what's, uh, this is like three days. So it's been, I've been off the Lexapro for like six days. And Zach sees me, Galifianakis. He goes, what, your, your teeth are white. What are you on, cocaine? He thought I was on cocaine. And I was like, I was happy. I was taking like a victory lap. I was really like in a good mood. Like I went to Ireland. I went to Montreal. The HBO show they bought. They bought the HBO show, the, the, mm -hmm. the pilot we did. I did see the pilot before I went to Ireland, but I didn't love it. I thought it looked good, but I didn't think it was super funny. And then when I heard back, like the people didn't, HBO didn't get it, but they're going to still give me that opportunity, I felt a little pressure. So I had the Chelsea stuff bumming me out, and I had some pressure from this HBO show, only in a sense that I felt like it could have been funnier, and I didn't like the way I looked on camera, a lot of issues. So I had that on my mind. So I do Montreal. Things are going great. I come back. Zach sees me with the white teeth. What are you on? You're on cocaine. I end up yelling at Zach or getting an argument with his girlfriend, fiance at the time. And then that just set me off. Like when Zach was like yelling at me. What was he saying to you? Just like don't. Just things like don't talk to me like that in my house. And, you know, like he was mad. Yeah. And I, I felt like I was just like hyped up. I wasn't on my meds and I was like, I was on cocaine almost, which I wasn't on, but that's what it seemed like. And then it just, the more they, they would check on me, it just upset me. And I remember like, um, I'm trying to retract the story. The re they sent, they called like the cop, like Dave Rath would call me. My friends are calling me. Dave, Dave Rath is a manager. A manager, yeah, yeah. And a friend. So these great, guys are great guy. calling me, checking it in on me. And I said, I'm fine. I'm doing great. I'm having a good time because I, they were seeing stuff on Twitter and they were worried about phone calls that they were calling. And I said I was fine. And then they sent the cops over to my house like on a Monday night. This is and I had been back since like Friday. So like on Monday, they sent the cops to my house. I go, what do you and like upset me? You know, the cops, I saw them and they said, uh, how are you doing? Are you? want to hurt anybody or hurt yourself i go no i'm feeling great 
And I was hosting TMZ. That's what I did. I hosted TMZ that week. So I hosted TMZ. I knocked out of the park like on Wednesday. On Monday, I'm getting the timeline confused okay. a little bit. But like the next Monday is like, once I did TMZ, that kind of set me off too. Like I felt like I had superpowers. Like I'm with TMZ now. Don't mess with me. <laughs> so that that like gave me superpowers. I got to host it. Remember, I was like, they're showing me every week. So like four straight weeks I was on. And they can char- uh, Harvey Levin goes, I like this guy. He's from the Valley, just like me. And they asked me to host it. So I knew when I was in Ireland and Montreal, I was going to get a chance to host TMZ, which was like, you know, I'm not going to bash celebrities, but I'll do it in a fun way. You know, mm-hmm. I don't believe in the whole paparazzi and upsetting people. But if I can get a chance, you know, I'm a comedian. Put me on. I'll goof around. So I ended up doing that, and I did well, and that gave me, like, super confidence. And already tied in with being off meds for, like, four days, five days, probably five days at that point. Do that, feel super confident. And then um, I started... Um, yelling at people like at Starbucks. I went into Starbucks and like people were giving me like weird energy and I felt like F you guys, I'm on TMZ. I'm in the hangover. You know, don't talk to me that way. You know, I was like saying I was talking loud on the sidewalk and kind of disrupting them. And then they complained to the manager and he came out and says, You gotta calm down or something. Then I like I sat down and I like started crying, but I was happy. It was like tears of joy. Like I'm doing well. This is my this things are going great and these people better respect me. You know, these are like actors giving me bad attitude. Fuck them. That's kind of what I was saying. And like, so there was a, a kind of a, a paranoia in there, in there too. A little bit, yeah. Like paranoia. It sounds like you were reading things into how people were looking at you, or do you think you were just so jittery that they were kind of looking at you because of? I that? wasn't jittery. I wasn't jittery, but I was I was hyped up, but I wasn't really jittery. Yeah, I was talking loud and uh, enough to where they complained and. You know, and then I went to another Starbucks, and this is after the the cops. Like on Monday, they called the cops on me, and so the cops came to check on me, and that's when I said, "Why would I be? Why would I want to hurt myself? I'm happy. I'm taking. I mean, I just I was in the Hangover. I just hosted TMZ. Things are great. And then one of the cops was kind of a jerk, and the other one was like laughing. And I asked the laughing cop, "Can I talk to this other cop?" And he goes, "Yeah, go ahead." And I go. Why are you being so mean to me? Like, why are you being, you don't like Jewish people? I was saying that. And uh-huh. I go, you you got like a bad attitude. I mean, I'm a good guy. I go, I work out too with Joe Rogan. You know, why don't you take, <laughs> I said, why don't you take off your badge and belt, come out back and we'll fight. I'll fight you. Oh my I said God. that to the cop and he like backed down. He like, I don't know if he thought it was a joke or what, but they, he didn't like, I like backed him down a little bit. I was really? like, yeah, a cop. They didn't cuff you. No. No, no, they did not cuff me. They did not cuff me. What were you? Did, did you at that point? Did you really want to wrestle him? No, but I was. Uh, you know, I felt like I could. <laughs> did you? I, I'm just trying to get into the, into the mindset of what it feels like to be in mania because I don't know if I've ever experienced anything like that. Does it feel like you are like people are slowing you down? Yeah. And, Okay, because that's the feeling I get is it just seems like... You're invincible. People are slowing you down. How dare you not think I'm funny? How dare you give negative energy towards me? How dare you look at me weird? How dare you not respect me? So is it kind of an irritable euphoria? A little bit. I mean, I mean that happened at that Starbucks. 
so actually, so that was on Monday when the cops came over. And I love that you're getting coffee. Yeah, of course. (laughs) Coffee, caffeine keeps me going. I only have a couple cups a day anyway. And are you sleeping at this point? Not much, like four hours. And people think I'm up all night. I'm tweeting up a storm. I'm just going nuts on Twitter. So that's why people know like something's not right with Brody. Is it a bit for his HBO thing? Is he is it real? And then I mentioned something about a gun, and that's when like that caught the eye of a lot of people. That scared people. What did you say? I th- I said I had a gun. Back off. Leave me alone. I got a gun. I, somebody said I may have said I had a gun in my mouth. I don't know, but I didn't have a gun. I didn't want to hurt myself. But you tweeted that? I, I, got I tweeted that because I was getting these calls from all my friends worried about me. I was like, I'm fine. Guys, I'm fine. Trust me. I'm happy. I was out of character, you know? And so then I said something about the gun was later on. They started calling me on like Sunday because, what well, was it, Saturday? I came back, so it's already been like a week. And I go, I'm going down to, I'm friends now with the TMZ guys. They're at the Angel Baseball game in Orange County. So they say, why don't you come down? And I know some players where I can get a pass and, and meet them. So I said, yeah, yeah. I said, yeah, I'll go do that. So I'm feeling great. I'm, I'm like totally like eyes wide open, feeling good. Nice white teeth. Yeah, nice white teeth, of course. And then I go to 7-Eleven and I know that I'm putting out these weird tweets and I'm walking in in the parking lot and I see this guy who looks like he may be an actor or something. And I go up to him because I'm like going up to people. I go, are you on Twitter? He goes, yeah. I go, listen, I'll buy you a beer. I'll buy you a case of beer. If you tweet something like I, I Brody Stevens is a good guy. He just bought me beer. That's what I asked him to do. And he said he would do it because I said I need I, mean, I said I've been doing some crazy tweets and I need like a stranger on Twitter mm-hmm. to say something positive about me. And he agreed to do it. So we go inside the 7-Eleven and he gets a, like a six pack. I go, get a case of beer. Get a case. No problem. Because I, uh, I, I was just going to get him whatever he wanted. I said, you work out, get some protein shakes, get whatever you want. I'm here for you. And then we're waiting in line. And I'm like behind him. He goes, dude, you're freaking me out. <laughs> I go, I'm offering to buy you beer and workout uh, drinks, and all you got to do is write a tweet, and you're being a jerk to me. I go, no wonder you don't, you're not in any movies. No wonder, I'm in movies. Oh, my I go, God. you got a bad attitude, man. I go, I'm a nice guy, and you freaked out. That's why people don't hire you. You said you were an actor. I wouldn't hire you. Wow. And then I like was yelling in there. I mean, it was like yelling. Now, was any part of yourself going, I am sounding like a pompous, crazy guy? Not really. No. I was like in Brody mode. Because when you're not in that manic stuff, you don't believe that stuff, do no. you? No. No. I don't. Do I believe it? That you're better than other people because you were in the. No. The, no. The Abs- absolutely not. Absolutely okay. not. But I will say in warm up, I'll go like if a crowd isn't bringing energy or a guy's mm-hmm. slouched over, I go, don't be slouched over. Positive energy. Sit up. Look, I mean, it happens for me. I'm mm-hmm. booking. Th- why am I working? Why do <laughs> they call me? You know why? Because I sit up, I bring positive energy, and I accept blame for everything. And that's why people want me there. And that, and cause, cause I do these shows with these audiences right. and sometimes they're paid audiences or they're, you know, a football team or a baseball team. So you give them a little advice on life and, you know, make it funny or whatever. But, um, yeah, I yelled at the guy there in the parking lot at 7 uh, Eleven. And then I went to the baseball game, drove down there and I was combative with security guys. 
Now, at any point, are you thinking to yourself, this is the sixth or seventh person in a row that is telling me the same thing? They're all wrong. Okay. I'm right. Okay. You're wrong. I'm feeling good. I'm doing things. And then on top of that, yeah, I was tweeting up like, I'm the next $100 million guy. <laughs> Hangover 3. I signed. Because everything was related to, to me. You know, HBO was Warner, you know, Time Warner. And then you had uh, um, Hangover was Time Warner. And then something else was Time Warner. There was HBO's like, Time Warner. HBO, Warner Brothers, and something else. But I was like tying all this. Oh, TMZ. TMZ's with Warner Brothers. So I like tied them all in, like I'm signing a deal with them, which I wasn't, but I was just putting all this crazy positive energy. And people were like following me. And then, you know, they didn't know if it was a joke or a meltdown or whatever. So anyway, I went to the baseball game. I was a little combative. Not, I mean, combative with security, but not mm -hmm. bad. I've been down there a bunch, but I said, like, I'm with TMZ Sports now. Treat me with a little bit of respect. <laughs> oh, my God. That's what I was saying. So I was like turning my brody life into like reality right. it was like really blending in and i was combative if you weren't with me if you were against me it's like you're wrong so um i went to sarah silverman's party that night and i was basically just cornering people and talking and i thought i was fine i mean i was goofing around with uh, marilyn manson he got a kick out of me david cross and uh, uh robert smigel and you know, all these other people I was joking with. Some people I cornered and I, I spoke to, and some people like thought I was like my eyes. I could I was acting weird. People who really knew me thought I was acting weird. People who kind of knew me thought I was funny, and then people who didn't know me at all thought I was like annoying or whatever. And Sarah had it told me to calm down or whatever, and I go, you know, I was like mad at her for having her tell me that, but I didn't like snap or anything. So then I go downstairs and I'm in a good mood. That's Saturday. And then Sunday, back to tweeting. And then Monday, they sent the cops. Mm -hmm. Tuesday, I go to another Starbucks. And that's where I walk in. I see a couple people over here on Coldwater and Ventura. And I see a couple people in there. Their laptops and they're writing. And I ordered a drink. And I was waiting at the cold bar. And I see this guy has the same kind of shoes on as me. And I'm wearing a Dodger shirt. And he's wearing a Dodger hat. So I'm waiting in my line, and I'm friendly. I'm Brody. I'm friendly guy. I'm on Hangover. I host TMZ. Good <laughs> things are happening. And I'm in the valley, and I see the guy. I go, hey, I, I, he's he's got like an earpiece in. He's on the laptop, and I point to the shoes. I go, hey, we got the same shoes. And then I go, um, Dodger, Dodger. It's kind of like, and he had an earpiece, and he goes, I'm, I'm on the phone. I go, I'm just being a nice guy. I go, why are you such a jerk, man? I go, I'm doing, you're, you're writing a movie. I'm doing movies. I said, oh I said God. something like that, you know? <laughs> I go, you're, why? I mean, I'm a, I'm a good guy and you're being a jerk to me. Hey, this guy's a jerk. And then he like told the barista or he told her, this guy's harassing me. And then I said, this guy's a jerk. I'm being nice. And he was being a jerk. So then I walk out of the, I'm walking. I go, see this guy in the back? He's a jerk. And he'll never work in this town. Oh my! Does what do you feel as you recount this? What 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 does it? I don't want to do it ever again. I mean, it's it's kind of funny if you like, you know. I mean, looking back on it, thank God I didn't get hurt or nobody else got hurt. And I mean, that's a positive. That's fantastic that that didn't happen. That's fantastic. <laughs> but I went outside. It's fantastic. I, I'm not saying that sarcastically. Oh, I know. Uh, yeah, it's fantastic that nobody got. Because I mean, the potential for that. 
seems huge. Well, yeah, I had a couple more. Um, so I go outside there, and these Armenian guys, they recognize me from doing comedy at the comedy store. So I, went, I sat outside. I go, guys, because they talked to me a minute, like a couple minutes before. I go, I just yelled at a guy. I'm going to get in trouble. I know it. Like he's going to call the cops or something. Because they already sent the cops to my house, and I feel like. So they're laughing, and then I, I go back in there. I open the door. I go, I'm still out here waiting for you. And then some girl goes, hey, why don't you just mellow out? And I go, you mellow out. And then her boyfriend started coming after me. I go, okay, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Because I, I didn't want to fight. I didn't mm-hmm. want any, you know. I wasn't, like, wanting to fight. So, um, oh, also, after the Sarah Silverman party, I went to the comedy store. And there was, this is like 2.33 in the morning. They're hanging out in the back parking lot. So I come in there, and I'm in a good mood, drive my car in, and talking to my friends or whatever. And there was like a drunk guy who was like annoying people. He was annoying my friend Matt. And, and he like started coming at me like to touch me. And I, and I like front kicked him. I go, get him the fuck out of here. Uh, this is my lot. I don't know who the fuck this guy is. Move him. I like, but I front kicked. I kicked him. Mm-hmm. I, he was coming at trying to touch me. So I did get physical there. Um, so I did Sarah's party. When did you did you let him know that you were in the hangover? <laughs> no, I did not, actually. No, I, I know I did. I just front kicked the guy, and I said, get him the fuck out of here. This is, I perform here, not this guy. You know, you don't fucking touch me. Yeah. You're bugging everybody. Get the fuck out of here. So I was like, whoa, this is Brody. He's cursing. It's like, nobody said anything at the time, really. They are just kind of probably shocked at... I was acting that way. But then, so that was on that Sarah Silverman Saturday party. Monday, the co- I tweet, Monday the cops came the first time. And then the second, and then s- Tuesday, I go with, uh, I go to uh, the Starbucks. Mm-hmm. And that's where I say the guy has the same shoes as me. And he tells right. the barista. So you're talking talk- to the Armenian guys outside. Right. And I yelled at the girl and her boyfriend was going to mm-hmm. come after me. And I said, I'm sorry. So I'm sitting there. Then the cops show up. Well, actually, the guy like runs out. The guy yelled at he like ran out of the 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 the, the, the Starbucks, like took off, and then um, you hear like uh, the cops coming. And I dealt with the cops last night, so I'm like, okay, I'll talk to them again. I don't care. So there's different cops this time, and they came up, and I go, guys, film this. Come telling the Armenian guys, get your cameras up, film everything. I told them that mm-hmm. before. So they took me, and I go. The, the lady officers, two officers, and he goes, uh, can you stand up? And I go, yeah. And then she started putting the handcuffs on me. I go, um, Brody, being arrested, film this. And she goes, Brody, he's not being arrested. He's being detained. And this is right out there on, like, Ventura and mm. Coldwater, essentially. Mm. And she's frisking me. I had my hands up. And <laughs> they brought me off to the side, like, between the Ralphs and the Coldwater. And I'm sitting there like nothing was – it didn't bother me at all that I was in handcuffs and I was out in public, and people were staring at me. It didn't bother me at, at all. You were probably enjoying it because it's like, this is more stuff to talk about on stage. Here, I'm going to get some clips out of this. I'm exactly. Gonna, yeah, okay. Yeah, exactly. And they were videotaping it. and You know, I wasn't violent. Or I was just telling her the whole story, the girl holding my arm, the cop. I told her my whole story. I asked her about I, I asked her. About her. I told her exactly. I may have mentioned I was stopped taking my meds. Mm-hmm. I may have mentioned that. But I was basically telling him, I'm in a good mood. I'm happy. You know, this guy was being nice to this guy, and I'm sorry, and I overreacted or whatever, and I'm not a bad guy. The cops came to my house last night, 
things are going well. My friends are worried, and they like started like loosening up. Like I'm in the we, hangover. Did you let her know you were in the hangover? I think I, I'm, <laughs> I'm sure did. I did. Yeah. I'm sure I did. Yes, 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 yes. I can almost guarantee I said that. <laughs> and they had me in handcuffs, and they started like loosening up their grip on me. They kept the handcuffs on me, but they're waiting for their their supervisor to show up. Mm-hmm. So I was there for like 15 minutes out on the sidewalk, but being nice, not fighting. And they started like asking me, "Are the cuffs too tight?" And I go, "No, they're fine." And then the 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 head guy showed up like 15, 20 minutes later. He pulled me aside and he says, uh, "You know." He probably knew what he was briefed on what happened. I said, I won't do it again. I'm sorry. Uh, I lost my cool. The guy was bugging, uh, you know, and let me go. Mm-hmm. He said, uh, he didn't. I go, my friends have been worried about me, but I'm fine. The cop, the officers came to my house last night. I'm okay. And he said, just promise me you won't cause any promise. I go, mm-hmm. I promise. So anyway, that was Tuesday. So and I then I went back on Twitter and I said I got detained or whatever, and then Wednesday I went Howard Kramer, you know Howard Kramer mm-hmm. from Who Charted, he came over to visit and I was just like all hyped up, but you know excited. Mm-hmm. I I knew I was on a bender. I knew I needed to get out of town. Like I was causing problems. I was out of character. So it's starting to sink in that maybe. They're not all wrong. Correct. And I need to take a quick vacation, you know, go down and see my mom. But I couldn't go down there. She was busy or whatever. And um, so I was with Howard, and we went to McDonald's because I just wanted to, like, update them on what was been going on. So we went, like, we were going to go to a different Starbucks, but they were remodeling. So we went to McDonald's just to go there. And I was telling them my problems or telling them what was going on, but I was still, like, hyped up. So then we go back to my apartment and um, I guess at this point, the guys were all, like, following me around, like, checking up on me. My friends were, like, secretly, Brody's losing it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> we got to follow him, make sure he doesn't get hurt. And they were really, like, researching all this stuff. And so um, I come back, and Howard's phone rang. I picked it up. It was Dave Rath. I picked it up. I go, Dave, this is Brody. I got a gun. I'm kidding. I'm doing great. I'm positive. I'm happy. And then... I was in a good mood. Then I went upstairs and I took a shower. One other thing. One mm-hmm. other thing. Like two nights before, I went to another Seven Eleven mm-hmm. and I saw this guy there. Like uh, not a home, might have been a homeless guy, but he was like harassing a girl. Like you could tell she wanted to go in. And he went up to her window and she was like creeped out by him. And she left. She didn't go in. She like mm-hmm. just left. And I, I, I um, was in my car. He came up to my car and wanted money. I go no. I like rolled my window up. And then I'm leaving. I'm seeing him there. Hey, I go you creep. You just scared that chick. You better freaking, uh, I was probably cussing. You better fucking watch it. I, I live around here. I'm watching you. You just scared that girl. You better, you mother, you know, those F-bombs and all mm. that stuff. And I taped it. And I put it on YouTube or MySpace yeah. or whatever. So people saw that. And it's like, I'm making these crazy videos. So anyway, the cops, they detained me at the Starbucks and I go the next day I go to McDonald's to Howard Kramer I go back home everything's good Dave calls I'm joking that I I had a gun which I didn't have I never had a gun never intended on having a gun and then I go in to take a shower and I'm still emotional I'm like crying and I'm laughing I'm feeling good but it's like tears of joy and I told I saw my landlord and I say I owe you on rent because it was like mm-hmm. day three I owed, I owed rent and uh, so I go up and take a shower, and like I'm in the shower, and I'm washing off, and I see, like, I hear like the door shut or open. I thought it was my roommate, Joe Wagner, was staying mm-hmm. with me at the time, 
and I see it's police officers, like three cops in there. So I, 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 I get out of the shower, and they're in my apartment, like four cops, and they handcuff me, and they throw me down, like on my this one of these chairs here, and like I was naked, basically. So I practically sat on my testicle. Which always, I, which always I nice for a manic person. Yeah, and uh, they wouldn't give me a towel. I had my towel, and the the cop was being a kind of jerk. He was audio taping me, and he was like laughing at me, and like I go. Look, I, uh, I'm i not a crazy guy. I go, I work at Chelsea lately. I work on these shows. I'm a comedian. I'm a good guy. I don't have any guns. I have nothing. And um, I think they knew I wasn't taking my meds. I may have mentioned that. But um, and the guy was just being a prick to me, this head cop guy. Like, And, they, when they were hold, and they, the other two cops were like holding me down hard and like, they weren't very nice at all. The other cops the night, the night before were nice. The cops at Starbucks were nice. So the four other cops that I dealt with were fine. These guys were kind of jerks and, like, egging me on a little bit and, like, making me negotiate for, like, my shoes and my underwear. I go, can I at least – I said, I'll do whatever you want me to do. I'm not fighting that. I'll go with you and I'll, if you want to take me away. But at least can I put on some clothes? They go, no, I don't touch men's underwear. Like, they wouldn't let me get up and get my underwear. And then he, like, uh, kicked my shoes uh, towards me. He said, here's some shoes. He, like, pushed them. And I said, fuck you. And I kicked my, like, you used to, like, treat me like a jerk. Mm-hmm. And he goes, that's it. We're done. And then he threw, like, uh, a comforter on me. Like, it was, like, a piece of crap bed comforter or whatever. And they took me out on handcuffs and, like, a restraints and my whole apartment building's looking at me and the cop is like following me this the supervisor just being like a dick but smiling mm-hmm. like egging me on a little bit and i was going fuck you fuck you and your acne scars jerk wow i was like pissed off and he was like laughing so anyway then they took me down to torrance you see because there wasn't a bed at ucla so they took me down to like the freaking where they take crazy people off the street so I went there, and I spent like 35 hours there, and they wouldn't talk to me. I said, look, I went off my meds. That's all. I'm not. I'm a normal guy. I, work on, I worked at Chelsea. I, I hosted TMZ. I just got back from Montreal. I'm a normal guy. Like, that, like any of that matters to them. You know what I well, mean? Well, I mean, but it does a little bit. Like yeah. when I went to UCLA later on, and they checked the computer, they go, oh, you're famous. Yeah. I go, yeah, I'm normal. I'm not a bad guy. So they were kind of like weird to me at this, you know, uh, the, the the county place I went to, UCLA County one. It was bad, and they, they weren't they weren't they were again. They don't treat you special. They just treat you like anything. And then I was asking questions like nobody was answering me. And then this guy was like crapping his pants over, and I go, "I'll crap my pants. I'll act like a wild man unless you tell." <laughs> I see this guy doing it. They go, you need to take a break. I go, well, this guy's doing it. Why don't you tell me anything? Let me make a phone call. They put me in like a solitary room for like uh, wow. for like a half hour, an hour, and I was and I I was like doing push ups. I was banging on the door. I was like looking to go, looking at the guy. I go, I'm enough. It was like point. I was just like playing it up. Like yeah. I was like Robert De Niro and uh, Taxi Driver. Not Taxi Driver, but the other one, Cape Fear. Cape Fear, more Cape yeah. Fear. Because taxi, I never wanted to shoot anybody, and I didn't want to shoot myself. I'm, I wasn't, you know, that was just, you know, when you do comedy at the comedy store yeah. and you do crazy stuff, you know, the craziness in, it doesn't, you know, crazy comedy kind of like, 
prepared me for this kind of stuff. Like doing these crazy late night shows at the comedy store. Now I'm like locked up in a, you know, in a, a hospital. It's like I've seen it all. But I mean, because it's a crazy story how I got in the hospital. So like that just. I can't imagine how frustrating that's got to be for somebody who feels like they have the energy to be God and everybody is not only not agreeing with you, but they are impeding your progress. Yeah, exactly. They're wrong. You are wrong. I'm doing the right things. I'm taking the victory lap. It's about time I have a good time. I'm going to be nice to myself. Now, these these things... Where you talk about, you know, I'm doing, I'm doing these things. I'm accomplishing these things. Do you, in, in talking with your therapist about that, is there like some type of like childhood trauma or issue where you felt like you, where like power was taken away from you or your kind of needs weren't met or you were belittled or something? Um, I would say I was belittled. I was picked on a little bit. I'm very sensitive. I'm a nice guy. I'm a little selfish, but I'm a nice guy, and I am sensitive, and I analyze things. So who, I f- who were you picked on by? Just like other kids growing up, I feel though I went to public school. A lot of kids probably went to private schools. I went to public schools. I was bust, you know. And you deal with it. not that in private school people won't get picked on, but I felt I was kind of like out there in a tougher environment. And I'm a nice guy, and I I just got picked on a lot for being a nice guy. But I also played sports, so people respected me. And I didn't consider myself a funny guy or a funny kid. I just thought it was like, I thought it was weird, actually. So I didn't have any, like, you know, anything too traumatic happen to me. A couple things, but, you know, for the most part. Can you talk about those? Um, Save it for another podcast. No, I was just kind of like taken advantage of and, and you know, could like, uh, you know, look at it anyway like that. So I was taking it as a kid, not, not, not like an adult, maybe like, a, you know, I just pushed around a little bit. You know, I didn't have an older brother. Mm-hmm. I had an older sister who did her own thing, but I rode BMX bikes. I played baseball, but I was in an apartment building where it probably was like a lot of kids and single moms and. Again, I wasn't, I don't think I had that protection. I just remember guys picking, oh, you're gay, you smile, you're a nice guy. They took my niceness for being gay. Mm-hmm. You know, like, oh, you're gay. And I was like, I'm just a nice guy. Open-minded, nice kid. And I don't think they they appreciated that or got that. So I started getting picked on, like, oh, maybe I am gay. They're all saying I'm gay. So that bugged me. And that kind of like, the fact that I was just thinking about that bothered me and then i you know people would and i talk about this on other podcasts it's like how i walked or my mad like gay mannerisms but i wasn't gay and i'm still not i'm 10 percent gay and i talk about that on another podcast <laughs> but i'm not i'm not flaming i just wish i was you know i'm a jewish guy jewish guys are goofy you know comedians are goofy artists and actors are goofy i i came from that jock world where everything is Conform. You know, you're not goofy. It's conform. And then when you go in the alternative world, not the alternative world, the, uh, you know, show business or arts, people are so more open and so. Yeah, you're, you're encouraged to be different. You're encouraged yeah. to be different and they're more accepting. Whereas when you're playing sports, you're dealing with 
that jock mentality. And I get it, and it means they like you for the most part, but it can wear you down, and you can feel like, I don't want to be around this. I'd rather be around smarter chicks, girls, doing that sort of thing. But, I mean, I love baseball, but I'm just like, I wish I was more graceful. I wish I was a better athlete, like I walked better, I carried myself better. And I do things, like I do yoga, I do stretching, I feel like there's things that I can control. But it does screw with me. It messes with my head a little bit because mm-hmm. I wish I was a more graceful athlete. So so you, it's it's fair to say then that there was kind of, uh, when you were in this manic episode, there was also a chip on your shoulder from your adolescence that, that no, I am enough. You know, you're, they were, they were wrong. Yeah. I mean, I don't know about so much they were wrong more, but I did have a, a chip on my shoulder. I think the TMZ thing did it to me. I think the HBO show selling that and having them buy that idea and having other networks agree to buy it too. So I had confidence with that. I was doing Chelsea lately uh, up until when I left. I was appearing on that. I was, I did ha- hangover one. I did hangover two. I was doing these festivals. So I did kind of develop a chip on my shoulder a little bit, but I wasn't like, you know, I wasn't rubbing it in people's face or anything like that. But I did do that. In your manic episode, you were. My manic right, episode, yeah. definitely. Yeah. I I was just, you know, everyone would say I was out of character, and I yeah. was. I was out of character, and I had that, you know, it was euphoric. It felt good. I felt like I didn't need sleep. I could exercise, and I just felt good about myself. Yeah. I was lean, and it just, but I, by, by, by day six, I knew something was off, and yeah. I needed to kind of like pull back. So let's go back to you're in solitary. Yeah, I am. (laughs) Right. So you were in solitary. Doing push-ups, banging on the wall. I was mad at this one doctor because he wouldn't tell me anything. Wouldn't tell me, like, when I'm going to leave. Or I told him, like, I just stopped taking my meds. And why don't you tell me more? And he wouldn't. And it was like, can I just ask a question? He like, walk by me. And then I saw his badge. And I go... You know, question his name. Like, Where'd you go to high school? And I knew all that. Like he told me before, and I go, I'm going to find you. I'm going to look for you. I know where Harvard Westlake is, or whatever school he went to. <laughs> I go, you're not, you're not treating me right. I'm a person, not a patient. You better learn how to do that. I deal with, I deal with regular people. I'm not some crazy guy off the street. And the way you're acting ain't cool, ain't right. Stuff like that, and then. And then I was just like getting upset, and then they put me in that room because I, I, I mean, this guy shitting his pants or threatening to shit his pants. I go, okay, I'll get his, I'll do that, I'll threaten that. Yeah. And then they put me in the room. It was like to me, it was just fun and games. To be honest with you, yeah. I wasn't, you know, uh, I wasn't going to fight anybody, but I was just like I was amped up, but I wasn't a threat to anybody. It was just weird. It was like I'm in this I'm in this situation. So when did you begin to realize that they're right and I'm the one that's misinterpreting? Um probably after about 3 days at UCLA cuz the same kind of thing happened once I moved to UCLA Medical Center um after about a day and a half of and- being in the the public downtown or wherever South Bay or wherever it was. And this is all against your will. You don't, um, you don't have the, the... Yeah, I mean, I had no say. I, 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 okay. I believe I had no say. And I was doing... I was compliant. I was saying, okay, if you think it's best, I'll do it. 
So they got a bet at UCLA, and I go to UCLA, and the first few days I was having some issues with the nurses there for having, again, having them be treating me like a patient and not a person. And I was like letting them know, you know, I'm a normal guy. I mean, this, it wasn't like I was a return visitor. You know, they had a lot of people that go in and out of that place or in and out of psych wards and hospitals. It was my first time. I stopped taking my meds. I made a mistake. You know, looking at it from their perspective, I've got to imagine to do their job, they deal with so many people every day that can't see that they're in their illness that they probably get tired of trying to reason with them, and you just have to ignore them. You just have to right. to shut down and just walk past them. And that's got to be a little heartbreaking, but they probably have to do that to protect themselves emotionally. Or yeah. just e- energetically, they, they, they have to do it. Because you would just be talked to death if each and every person you tried to make them see, no, see, this. the reason that this is this and this is that is because this happened and that. So it's probably just easier to just shut down. Shut down and... Yeah, I figure that too. Like they have a lot of, you know, they're just trying to do their job and... But again, I was still kind of manic at that point I, and I, I wasn't able to think like think that way. And still Whereas, couldn't see that you were in mania. Right. I couldn't see. And were people telling you you're in mania right now? No. Uh-huh. Nobody was saying, like, you're mania. You're, nobody was saying, like, you had a manic episode or, you know, it was just like, you're here. Had you ever had a manic episode before this one? Not that I know of. Okay. I mean, I've had, you know, I've had some, like, I mean, I've gotten mad at a couple things, but I don't have road rage. I'm not a confrontational mm-hmm. person. Um, not, I'm not that kind of guy. Okay. You know, it's like I, I don't yell at waiters. I don't yell at people. I'd never had that issue. I didn't front kick guys in the parking lot at, you know, the comedy store, yell at people, the 7-Eleven. I, mm-hmm. I never did that. Okay. You know, my comedy sometimes, I would go into that area, that red zone, because I was so fired up, and I would be upset if I had a bad set. So those were things. But those are real. Like, that's what made me real. People like that. Like, mm-hmm. that is this guy real? He's so passionate. He's open. He's going for it. And it keeps him guessing. They're like, where? where is the... Wh- what is he exaggerating? Which part of the part of this is really him and which part of this is being pumped up which is compelling to watch yeah that's probably why i got a lot of fame not fame but like fans or attention attention because i did that early on but it didn't you know it's like stressful for me a little bit that's why i'm saying that now that i'm on a different medication i take a mood stabilizer right now which i never had taken and it's take in it it's been a while for me it to get adjusted to this. What are you taking? Uh, I take Lamictal, mm-hmm. 300 milligrams. It's a mood stabilizer, but it anti-epilepsy too. A lot of these drugs mm-hmm. are like off-label. Uh, they use them for... Anti-seizure. You know, anti-seizure would probably could work also as like an antidepressant mm-hmm. at, at certain levels or work as a mood mm-hmm. stabilizer. Anti-seizure. Yeah. So I take this Lamictal, and that seems to like mellow me out. A little bit. And then once you get to 300 milligrams, which is where I'm at now, you have to bring it up real slow because there could be a skin rash. But you get to that, and that, to me, has kind of softened my edges. I, I don't go in the red zone. I'm more mellow. I'm at peace a little, you know, and I can think straight. But the problem with that is that it's hard to work out. It's hard to take action on some things or be 
it slows you down a little bit. But the, like I said, I'm, I'm getting used to it. I'm getting used to it, and uh, I'm learning life. Va- I'm learning life lessons that are helping me adjust with that, like having more structure, uh, you know, developing positive habits, having a support system. So yeah, I'm on these meds, and my body's adjusting, but. All the positives are I have a therapist now. I have a psychiatrist. People know that what I went through uh, 16 months ago or whatever, there's a history of that. So I have the support in place. So, yeah, the meds the meds have helped me. Um, Did if, we miss anything at, at UCLA? Okay, uh, back anything? to that. Well, uh, if there's anything to touch oh, on. Oh, yeah. If, yeah, bring, I'm th- you know, and that's why you're a good host, Paul, because you, <laughs> you brought me back in. And that is when you were at UCLA, that's when I became aware of what was happening with you. Okay. So people were like, you should get Brody on your on your uh, show. He's at. Yeah, he, get him on. He just he's got hospitalized. He's Do at a podcast UCLA. from the hospital. And I was like, well, you know, maybe right now isn't the best time, but right. maybe at some point in the, Soon. In the future. So you're at UCLA. So I'm at UCLA. LA. Uh, the food is actually good. The shower works great. I had my own room, comfortable bed, TV. How about the pants shitting? Um, no, I stopped that. Okay. I stopped. That was a threat. Okay. Didn't follow through. I didn't follow through. But that, at that, you, I, I guarantee you people crap their pants a lot. I mean, a woman showed me her lactating nipple there, and she wanted to give me her phone number. And I take I, it. I take it a fellow patient. You would take it? No, I'm saying I'm, I take it that was a fellow patient. Yes, yeah, yeah, yes. It was a it was a lady, and that was like yeah. That first night, uh, I was staying with crazy people off the street, mm-hmm. essentially, and the because there wasn't a bed available at the real UCLA on campus at the hospital there. So anyway, the next day they brought me in and took me a few days to adjust, and I felt like okay, I, I can't fight it. I thought maybe I'd only be there for three days, and they'd let me go. But when I realized I was going to be there a little bit longer, I was okay with it. Um, they moved me around a couple times. Like I was at first, I was like in intensive care, I think, and then I went to where they're like crazy, and then I went to like addi- the addiction wing, and that was more mellow. Like that's where I should have been. Everyone was mm-hmm. mellow over there. So they had me like the processing one where. Who knows? Like, there's some. There were crazy people in there, mm-hmm. and they kind of like made you feel weird a little bit. Then they moved me to a one where it was like. When you say crazy people, you mean like people who are look who crazy, fully and, and like fully broken from reality, where like they're hallucinating. Yeah, I mean, you would not hallucinating, but you'd see a guy and go, "This guy's nuts." Mm-hmm. Like you would talk to maybe a guy at a comedy show or something, or a guy on the sidewalk outside at a comedy show, and like. Had that kind of energy. This guy named Nevada. That was his name. He was kind of like, you know, crazy, weird. Yeah. And then they had, you know, everyone had their own little issues. But then I, I had problems. That I, like I said, I had problems with the nurses there at first. So they moved me to intensive care. And that was where we were dealing with people who had like, uh, you know, attitude problems. You know, acted up. So they put me in there. And after a couple days... Because I felt I didn't belong in that one. They put me in the addiction place where people were, it was more mellow, much better. So I, I figured I'm going to stay in here. I'll eat. They they feed you well. I did not get involved in any activities. I wasn't doing any uh, like arts and crafts or therapy because in my mind, I was there because I made a mistake. I stopped taking my meds, cold turkey, That and that triggered everything. So in my mind, I was completely 
set on that. So I didn't so, need this therapy. I didn't need to do arts and crafts. I didn't need to talk it out. But while you were there, you then it dawned on you then, okay, this is all a result of me having gone off my meds. This is their, their right. There is a problem here with how I'm acting. Yeah, there okay. was. Okay. Yes. So that did finally occur to you when you were in UCLA. Correct. Okay. And so then, were they were they giving you drugs at yes. that point? And, and was it those coming down from those that allowed you to see what they were trying to tell you? Probably, yeah. They were giving me Depakote and Seroquel, which is Depakote's like a lithium, and Seroquel is an antipsychotic, and it makes you sleep. And so they put me on meds to mellow me out, stabilize me, which it did. And like I said, like after a few days, I I said, okay, I'll be here for a while, a little while at least, and. You know, there's no internet. I can call on the payphone. There's no, um, you know, I ate all right. The food was good, and they, they, you know, they wake you up in the morning for breakfast, and then I would go out on the patio and relax. But kind of kept to myself. I read books. I journaled that sort of thing. And then, like after nine days, I met with the, uh, you know, you'll have like a little meeting, to, like a process, see how you're doing with your doctor and your. Of, of like a family represent, representative. And he wanted me to say basically that I won't attack anybody ever again at Starbucks. Uh-huh. And I said, I won't attack anybody at Starbucks, I promise. And he like didn't believe me. Like he says, I still, I don't believe they, and they decided to keep me there longer. I'm going to keep you for more days. And that pissed me off. That was a one time where I felt like, I mean, I, I can go. I've been here nine days. I get it. He goes, I don't believe, you know, he didn't believe me. And that's when I did like a hunger strike. I like didn't eat for like a half a day. <laughs> I did a half a day hunger strike. And then again, after that, I just kind of uh, sucked it up and I, I wanted to get out. Yeah. I mean, you're, you're, you want to get out back into society, but it wasn't, it wasn't torture. Because I had a TV, I had food, I had magazines. And who's paying for all of that? Well, I i mean, I have insurance, so okay. insurance paid a big chunk, and I still owe, I myself personally, I owe a, a sizable amount, but nothing that's insurmountable. So, yeah, I mean. I shudder to think how much that would be for somebody that didn't have insurance. If I didn't have insurance, I think the bill was 47000 bucks. But I have insurance, and it paid for quite a bit of it. So that was a lot of it was obviously the night spent at UCLA, and then it was the ambulance, and then a couple doctors. But it was I owe about eight thousand bucks, which was which is a lot less than forty seven thousand. So yeah. my insurance did a great job on that, and I do have to pay them and uh, set that up. So I was there. Gonna, when you pay them, are you going to meet them at Starbucks? <laughs> Meet him, prove him that you know um, everything's cool. I'm, I'm a nice control. guy. I'm a, I'm nice, a guy. nice guy. I take Lamictal, but I also take Lexapro again. I'm back on yeah. that, you know, um, and that's part of the depression. That was, mm -hmm. you know, I mentioned that earlier. How nobody warns you that what goes up comes down, and I came down. And I came down pretty hard, and I think a lot of that had to do with um, the meds. The meds they put me on. And the living in Hollywood, getting out of the valley where I'm comfortable, and then moving to Hollywood to a studio apartment where I just never really felt comfortable. So adding that on to new meds, 
kind of really brought me down and not having the structure like I used to have here. When I was living here a couple of years ago, I would have my routine. I'd get up. I'd go to, I would go to Starbucks. I would write. I'd walk back. I'd exercise. Then I would go do audience warm up at Chelsea and then eat dinner, go shopping, do a set at night, then repeat, do the same thing. I was doing all that. And then when I got out of warm up for that year or two, I was, doing festival gigs and picking up other things and becoming a better comedian and still exercising. And um, then when I went to Hollywood, I just, I, I, I didn't, I didn't have the space in my apartment. I didn't like the tour vans. I didn't like the noise. I didn't like all the actors and actresses, all the people fresh to town, the Swedish rock bands, the, the, the crazy energy that was just right down the street near, you know, Hollywood and Highland and, there's a there's a, a, it's a fe- bad energy. There's a feeling of desperation of that, that kind of pervades uh, Hollywood. And even though the valley is just over the hill and only five miles away, it's I'm from the Midwest, and the valley feels like the Midwest to me. It just feels suburban. It's yeah, it's not as hip, but it 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 just doesn't feel. I don't feel that desperation like I, oh. I feel on the other side of the hill. I mean, it's palatable, and you see it. I mean, even at the coffee beans that I go to now, the coffee bean I'd go to on Fairfax and, and Sunset there, and it's like, yeah, there's hot chicks, and there's actresses, and there's like, I guess there's actor guys, and there's everyone's got a laptop, and then you got the crazy people, and then you can only park for an hour, and then it's like everyone's trying to be somebody. Then I come to the Starbucks out here, and it's like I can park forever, however I want, long, and there's none of these, a couple actors, but it's mostly families and, you know, uh, and Orthodox Jews, and I sit there, it's just, I feel a lot better, and I think, then I was talking about being down and how nobody warned me about that. I think one of the, Solutions. Well, I think a big part of it was moving out and getting a different apartment, coming back to the valley. And so far, so good. It's worked. But, I mean, I'm far from, you know, I feel a lot better, to be honest with you, you know, just doing more comedy and working, you know, work helps. I mean, everybody would say work helps. And, and I've had some anxiety, things I haven't had before, you know, like thinking about, you know, I'm older now, I'm 42, I don't have a kid, I don't have a wife, I don't have a girlfriend. I'd like to have a girlfriend, I wouldn't mind having a kid one day, I wouldn't mind being married, I wouldn't mind owning some property, I wouldn't mind doing those things. But I also have my own little personal issues that I need to take care of first. You know, it's like you got to really like yourself or love yourself before you can love others. And I'm starting to like myself more and more. And that's part of doing a podcast, too. I do my own podcast. What is the name of your podcast? The Stephen Brody Stevens Festival of Friendship. (laughs) I also do one on the Joe Rogan, the Death Squad Network. I do a couple over there. and. I, I play different characters. Like, it depends. Like, if I'm a guest on somebody's podcast, I keep it real. And, you know, I can be funny if you want to be funny. Um, and then I have ones where I'll, you know, play a different role. And then there's a, my podcast, the, the Festival of Friendship, is basically me doing a monologue for 30, 40 minutes. I just talk, whatever is on my mind. And then I bring on a friend or a guest, usually a friend, not necessarily a famous friend or anything like that. And then we just talk for like, I, 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 I turn into an interviewer. So I, I, I mellow out and I interview and I turn into like this guy. As opposed to like, yes, positive push. But I'll do that too on the intros. And so I do that and that, that feels good. And, um, 
why do why did I bring that up? I, uh, I was asking you about your podcast, and you were and you were just talking about the different the, the different podcasts. But the, the the one thing that I just want to kind of end with is uh, how how are you feeling today, and what are you what issues are you addressing in therapy that you feel like are helping you get closer to being comfortable in your own skin? Um. I think for me, structure's been a big deal. Getting out of the house, not isolating. Not that I had a problem isolating, but getting out and doing that. So having structure every day, I get out. You know, you comedians, they write every day. You know, writers write every day. So saying that I'm a comedian and I'm a writer, that gives me an excuse to get out of the house, go to a coffee bean, stay there for two to three hours if I have to, email tweet you got to do all that crazy stuff now email tweet instagram um have some coffee relax uh make phone calls yeah i treat it like my office it's just good for me to be around people and i do that so that helps me taking action i mean the big thing for me with my therapy was really getting me out of my apartment getting back to having a home uh, to come come to a home. Like I have a home, an apartment here right now, and it feels good and it has carpeting and I have a refrigerator and I have cable TV, you know. And then Stability's the, nice. Stability's nice, but I don't have, you know, financial stability necessarily, and I know a lot of people don't, and that's something where... You know, I've had some, I've had some anxiety. You know, nor, I, I'm suffering from normal stuff now people listening are like how can a guy who was on the hangover and hosted this and did that how can he have financial instability people a lot of people think that like once you've been on tv you're just all of a sudden you're oh you're you're set for, yeah for i mean I, I used to think the same thing i see you on tv or a, a movie or you're on radio it's like wow you're doing well that's not the case uh, probably for most actors or most people. So, um, yeah, that's a real that's a real reality. Being able to, as a comedian, believing in yourself, feeling that you're an actual commodity where you can go to clubs and make strangers laugh and travel the country. That that's daunting for me. You know, I don't like I said at, at the core, I'm a baseball player. So I feel that. And I'm starting to feel like I'm a comedian. It's mm-hmm. taken me 20 years. And I just feel as though it's, yeah, it's a stressful, it's stress, it's, and I, it's stressful. Some people can go and do six shows at the Orlando Improv and think nothing of it. I would be, you know, terrified right now. I'm just not ready to do that. And on top of that, I have my, you know, my normal issues. So I'm trying to work on these things just like everybody else. Yeah. I'm trying to like make myself feel better about things. Take action. Stay busy. Believe in myself. Stay on your meds. Stay on my meds. And, and I mean, I would like to taper them off. I would like, uh, I mean, I would like to be on less meds, but there's no stigma. There's no No. stigma. But the anxiety stuff is like, I think I'm through the depression right now. Mm But I am have some anxiety, and I take Klonopin for that. I'll be honest. I take a, a Klonopin, which seems to chill me out. and But I can't really tell the difference with it. And maybe that's, that's a sign like, oh, it's working. You know, that's the thing with meds. Like, you feel, oh, I don't need them anymore. Well, you need them because how you feel right now. And the, th- the other thing, too, is sometimes you don't feel the effects of going off your meds for months. 
Oh, really? Until, yeah. I wanted, The last time I tried to go off my meds, I felt great after three months. So I was like, I don't need meds anymore. And then at the five-month mark, I was crying all the time and thinking about suicide. And I was like, oh, my God. I, and my psychiatrist was like, yeah, that's why you're supposed to call me when you are thinking about going off your meds. Did you taper off? I tapered off, but then it was it was five months after taking the last of the tapers. Wow. I tapered off over like two months. I mean, yeah, meds are a scary thing. You know, you can be, you can get freaked out. I mean, if you go on the internet and read up on stuff, you can get freaked out by meds. And then also, like, I had a personal experience with it. So I'm a little, you know, it's a traumatic thing to go through. To go through a, a manic episode, however you got there, is a traumatic thing. And it's something that I do deal with every day. And I am getting better. And I do, you know, I know it sounds weird. Take it day by day. But that's kind of how I'm doing it. And I, I'm i lucky that I'm able to work. That helps. Like being able to do warm-up and be able to do different kind of shows. is a, And the podcasting has really helped me out because I, I, I use it as a therapy. I don't dump on people. But the podcasting is definitely... Help me out, getting it out. And that's part of like journaling and to-do lists. You want to get these things off your chest and out of your head. And it really does feel better. And that that works towards a better mental approach. Well, I appreciate you being so open open and honest. Do you do you want to uh, uh, wrap up the episode Brody style uh, on our episode about, about mania? Yes, episode about mania here with Paul Gilmartin. Good guy, buzzed in, showed up on time. I had fun. We could keep going for hours, but we're professional. We know that you're busy, but this podcast is going to help somebody. It's already helped me. It's my first podcast in my apartment. It's giving me confidence to be able to do a podcast in my apartment for uh, another occasion. But I'm here. I'm happy. Paul, thank you. Was that? A, was that? A, I mean, I'm not going nuts because I feel like I'm going to disturb my neighbors that was if funny. I if I yell too much. <laughs> I enjoyed it. I okay. enjoyed it, Brody. Stephen Brody Stevens. Stephen Brody Stevens. You got it. Yes. Push. Believe. Hashtag. Yes. I said yes twice, but damn it. That, that's a comedian right over me. You got to edit it down. <laughs> Thank you, buddy. You got it. Many, many thanks to, uh, to Brody Stevens. Um, before I take it out with uh, a survey and a, a forum thread, I want to remind you guys that there are a couple of uh, different ways to support the show. And those of you that have listened to, to all the shows or a lot of them, I apologize for this broken record of me saying this on, on every episode, but... Um, um yeah it's it's necessary so um here goes the pitch a couple of different ways to support the show you can support it financially by going to the website mentalpod.com and making either a one-time paypal donation or my favorite a recurring monthly paypal donation um you can sign up for as little as five bucks a month you only have to do it once and then it just uh takes care of itself um from, from then on until you decide to cancel it. You can do it for as little as five bucks a month, which may not be a lot to you, but it means the world to me. Brings me closer to my dream of doing this full time. You can also support the show. Oh, another financial way is you can, when you shop at Amazon, go enter through the search portal on our homepage, right-hand side, about halfway down. And then if you buy something at Amazon through that, uh, Amazon gives me a couple of nickels. Doesn't cost you anything. You cheap bastard. You can support the show non-financially by going to iTunes, giving us a good rating, and uh, by spreading the word through social media. All right. That's out of the way. 
This first survey I want to read is from a woman called uh, Asuka, and she is bisexual. She's in her 30s about her bisexuality. She writes, I've, I've yet to act on my bisexual impulses and haven't yet dated or really done anything with a woman. I also haven't told my family about my feelings, and this makes me feel like I'm, quote, in the closet. Uh, she's in her 20s, was raised in an environment that was a little dysfunctional, um, never been the victim of sexual abuse, deepest, darkest thoughts. I think a lot about genital mutilation and death. I don't know why, but I am fascinated by both concepts and can't go a single day without thinking about either. I don't want to have my genitals mutilated, but I think a lot about other women who have suffered through the process, and I'm ashamed to say, get off on the idea. It's disgusting and sick, and I feel like such a monster for masturbating to those kinds of thoughts, but I can't seem to not think about them. I love the idea of women in pain, and those kinds of images seem to dominate my sexual thoughts. Uh, Deepest, darkest secrets. She writes, I have several deep and dark secrets, but the one that I deal with on a daily basis is my very severe bulimia. I spend thousands of dollars on food each month, and I have, on several occasions, stolen food and money to meet the needs of my compulsion. My bulimia has so taken over my life that I've had to start vomiting in gallon-sized Ziploc bags and storing them wherever I can find a hiding spot so that no one becomes suspicious about my frequent trips to the bathroom. I hide them outside my window, in my car, under my bed, in my trash can, in my room, in boxes in my closet, and anywhere else I can find a place before I can finally throw them out in a dumpster somewhere around town. I have to plan my dumpster run so that I can sneak all of the bags out of the house without anyone knowing what I am doing. Sometimes there are so many that I forget about them. I've actually left a bag in my car for over a week because I forgot about it. The stench was almost unbelievable by the time I remembered it. I also suffer from bipolar disorder, depression, and anxiety, all of which feed, if you'll forgive the wording, the eating disorder. One of my deepest fears is that someone I love and respect will find out about my eating disorder and be completely disgusted by what they find. Um, I have nightmares about my loved ones finding containers overflowing with vomit, causing them to finally see what a disgusting pig I really am. You know, I just have to pause here and say, it makes me so sad that you call yourself a disgusting pig because I, any human being with compassion would see that and not see you as a disgusting pig, but see you as a very sensitive young woman who is in a tremendous amount of pain and is struggling to cope and somebody who needs more love in their life and is worthy of it. That's that's what I that's what I see. I don't see a disgusting pig. Um she says I feel like no one will understand and then I'm completely alone. I try to educate myself uh, on my disorder and do what I can to keep from acting on my impulse to binge and purge, but I feel like I'm trapped in an endless cycle that I will never be able to break away from. Sometimes I feel like the only way to stop would be to kill myself. I'm very proud and have a hard time asking for help. And that is at the core of most of us that have an addiction. That is at our core is we have a hard time asking for help. Um, she writes, which makes the whole situation even worse. One thing that does help is finding other people out there who are like me. I try to find books and podcasts on the subject and can say that podcasts like these have really helped. I would ask that you have more people 
with bulimia slash anorexia on the show. Maybe even some therapists who can talk about the subject to help people like me. Um, Let's see. Would you ever consider telling a partner, close friend, your fantasy? She writes, no, absolutely not. I'm sure that whoever I told would think I was a total lunatic if I said anything about it. Do these secrets and thoughts generate any particular feelings towards yourself? She writes, yes, I feel disgusting and wrong for thinking them, especially the thoughts about genital mutilation. I try to be an advocate for female equality and feminist ideas, ideals, and this is completely contrary to the philosophical traditions that I embrace. And to that, uh, you know, I would say probably half of the surveys that I read that people fill out, they have a sexual turn on that is contrary to what their morals are, and it causes them great, great distress. And you are not alone in that, and that does not make you a bad person at all, at all. So stop beating yourself up about that and start asking for help because you deserve it. You absolutely deserve it. And along that line, um, I wanted to read this next thing um, to, this is a thread from the forum that was sent to me by, um, by Sam. And the topic is, why not just stay home? And that pool analogy that I talked about at the at the top of the of the show, I think that fits perfectly here of that that fear of going out. And um, the first part of the thread, this was from um, Poster, uh, calls himself Jazz and Blues, and uh, they write: Every time I get invited out or have some event I want to go to, I get all excited, and then it as it creeps closer, I get anxious. I start to worry about the money I will spend. At the event, I worry about how to get there. The subways are annoying. I don't know enough people there. This person doesn't like me. Then about a half hour before I need to get ready and leave, I just say, why not just stay home? It will be easy and simple. I can have two dinners, drink some wine, and watch documentaries and Law and Order reruns until I fall asleep or decide to jerk off. Um, Then Kit Kat posted after that and said, I go through the same thing, except my anxiety will start at the very mention of an outing. I think about all these things I want to do, like go to concerts or parties or whatever, but then I think, I can't do that. I'll have a panic attack. There are so many restaurants I want to try, but I know I wouldn't enjoy it because I'd be too anxious. It's kind of sad. So most of the time, I avoid it altogether, or I'll say, this time I'll go, but end up curled on the couch the whole day worrying about it. But there are some times when I think, fuck it. And I decide I will just go out for a little bit or I will go out and tell myself I'm allowed to leave at any moment if I get uncomfortable. Of course, it's not that often, but the more it happens, the more I feel like I'm improving somewhat. So yeah, it's easy to stay in, but sometimes it's more rewarding to force yourself, which is obviously way easier written than done, but you know. Um, And then Jazz and Blues wrote back, I completely agree. I told myself um, to shut up and just went out last night and it was great. I didn't drink and I didn't feel the pressure to drink. I arrived when I wanted to and left when I felt like it. And then in capitals, Jazz and Blues put power. And I just think that's beautiful. And so I wanted to uh, I wanted to read that. If you're out there and you're alone or feeling alone, there's hope. 
there's always hope. You just got to get out of your comfort zone and ask for help. Say, I can't do this anymore. It's the most powerful phrase I ever said. July 21st, 2003. I asked for help, and my life has been getting steadily better since that day. So, if you're out there and you're suffering, big hug. And thanks for sticking with me for 100 episodes. It means the, the fucking world to me. Thanks for listening. Everybody I know is bizarrely beautiful. Everybody I know is bizarrely beautifully fucked up in some weird way. Bizarrely beautifully fucked up in some weird way.